Welcome to the Rockbrook Church Podcast. Our hope is that today's message brings you hope and clarity for your spiritual journey. We love hearing how God is working in your life. Feel free to share any stories of how this message gave you a new perspective and hope. Email us at church at rockbrook.org to tell your story. Well, good morning, church. Thanks for being here today. So great to be with you and to go to church with you. We had our first food drop yesterday of 2023 and uh, had a ton of people come through and uh, we were able to distribute food and uh, it took about 40 or 50 volunteers to pull one of those off. So I just wanted to thank you, say thank you. We had great weather yesterday for that, uh, which was nice. But thank you so much to those of you who stepped out and served for that. And, uh, and just having a powerful year so far. Thank you to those who are Serving on our dream team, of course, anyone's welcome on that, but from hospitality to worship team and, man, just some of the things you guys are doing, and then our midweek is Celebrate Recovery and uh, small groups and so much uh, powerful stuff happening already in this first month of the year. I'm excited to preach today and finish out this series we've been in called All Access. Now, next week... Uh, I'm going to give the introductory message of Daring Faith. You've heard us talking about this even since the end of last year, and I'm excited next week. I'm going to bring you the message that I brought to our staff at the beginning of last fall uh, that got us all aligned and ready to go with Daring Faith, and I know you're going to be excited to hear it and see why we're doing this, what the purpose behind it is, what the heart behind it is, uh, what we can get out of it. So I'm looking forward to that. But today, uh, we get to close out All Access, the story of you and God. And thank you for taking the journey of the series and uh, joined together with the 21 Days of Prayer and Fasting. And really, my heart behind this series is, if I'm going to encourage you to read your Bible, I see that there's so much in the Bible about the tabernacle, and then there's so much symbolism that's being referenced back to that I just felt it was my duty to give some insight or some background to make this more powerful to make realize why uh, we're reading about this so much and why God cares about it so much and in week one of the series we noticed that there are two main purposes of the tabernacle do you remember what these are there was an eternal purpose and a temporary purpose and the temporary purpose was to establish God as the one true God remember these people are coming out of a slavery in Egypt. They don't even have a religion. They don't really have, uh, uh, they don't know God. And so the tabernacle is uh, letting them know who God is. And then there's an eternal purpose, and that is to point to Jesus. And so in chapters one through three of the story, we learn that God wants to tabernacle with us, wants to dwell with us. Right in the middle of our very messy, even sometimes chaotic lives, he wants to dwell with us. And then the next week we looked at chapters 4 and 5 that God makes a way for us to be acceptable and to be forgiven. That God wants us to be forgiven, wants us to be with him. And he makes a way for that to be happened. Last week we saw that uh, as we are believer priests representing God to the world, representing the world to God, that God uses us. And as we close out this story today, we're going to catch a glimpse of how God protects and preserves our salvation. I'm excited to give it to you. You know, when God gave the 
instructions to Moses to build the tabernacle, God started with the Ark of the Covenant and then built out from there. Uh, But as we've gone through this series, we did the inverse of that because of how you were to approach God. And we started with the outer court and the bronze altar and worked our way into the mercy seat. And that's because you have to start with where the blood is shed for our salvation. We've talked about all those pieces, but before you get to the Ark of the Covenant, you saw this in the video, uh, there's one more final barrier to access, to get all access to God. And it's this veil or curtain that split the holy place in two to where you'd have the holy place and then you'd have the holy of holies behind. And that curtain, that veil, had one very simple purpose and that was, uh, again, it's a practical purpose to keep people out. And we kind of see that in the tabernacle there's a very practical purpose for something but then there's all this symbolism behind it. And this veil... From the color to the way it was constructed, everything God said about it, it's representing the coming Messiah. And we see now looking back that it's representing Jesus' body. In fact, the writer of Hebrews, uh, if you're reading through Hebrews or read through Hebrews in our uh, Bible reading plan, identifies this veil representing Jesus' body. His brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way open for us. So this is in the New Testament saying that now we can have confidence to enter that place through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. So let me ask this. How, how long did the Israelites use the tabernacle? Do you remember this? It was for 400 years that they were using the tabernacle and that this veil, this curtain, was a part of it. When Jesus died on the cross, uh, the Jews were not worshiping in the tabernacle anymore. They were using a permanent temple. So not a portable tent, but it was rebuilt as a permanent temple and it was elaborate, it was huge. The scale of the whole thing was different. And in the temple, it had a same veil, same curtain, except it was much, much larger, much, much, much taller. And when Jesus died on the cross, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in their Gospels, tell us that something happened to that curtain, that when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It's as though God from heaven had grabbed and reached down and grabbed that four-inch thick curtain and from the top of it, tore it all the way down to the bottom to signify that Jesus' blood that was provided was acceptable to God. That the sin question was forever settled. And if you're taking notes, that Jesus' work was finished. It's why he yelled out from the cross. It is finished. The price has been paid. The work has been done. And this place that's been off limits to everyone and now has now been ripped by God. And God is saying, finally, all access is given. And it, it brings us into 
the actual ark, the mercy seat that had been behind that curtain. And the ark was just, you saw it, it's just this wooden box that's covered with gold. Very simple ark box. It had the staves that they could carry it. And when they changed locations, they could take that with them. And the mercy seat is the top of this box. And on top of it, it had these cherubim that are actually... They're, they're not looking at each other. And there's actually four faces of this cherubim that have representation. Comes back out in Revelation. But they're actually looking down at the broken law that's inside that box. And they're positioned that way, representing the ark represented by itself is a throne of judgment. That God had said, take that broken law that mankind could not keep, put it inside the ark, and the ark became a judge. And the law never gives life. It gives the penalty. And it gave the penalty for sin, which is blood, which is death. So the law that pointed to our depravity, our wickedness, our separation from God. But in the midst of that, God is laying out His grace and laying out His mercy and laying out a way And even though there was the law that had been broken, that they were guilty before God, God was providing a way that's called the mercy seat. And the cherubim, as they're looking down on the judgment of the broken law, which, so these aren't, this is not like beautiful angel decoration here, all right? This is, uh, this is bad news. This is representing justice and representing God's judgment. And so they're not representing sweetness and light. It's representing God's holiness and and judgment on wickedness. And the only thing that was between God's judgment and our wickedness, God's judgment and our broken law, is this mercy seat to intervene between our sin and God's holiness. And the law that applied to the Israelites applied to Jesus, it applies to us today. And Jesus was judged by that law, and he's the only one in all of history who's ever been judged by that law and found perfect. And because he was found perfect by that law, he was the only one to be our sacrifice. And so the ark, the mercy seat together, are a picture of what Christ of who He is and what He's done for us. And that a broken law requires justice to be satisfied. And Jesus Himself put Himself, put His blood between the broken law and the justice that's represented in this cherubim. In in Romans 3.25 it says this. Let's read this out loud together. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Jesus is the only one who could put himself between God's justice and the broken law and be the mediator for us. So God told Moses... That they're to have one day a year where this mercy seat comes into play. And it's called the Day of Atonement. And Jews still celebrate it today. It's a day called Yom Kippur. 
And it was the day when all of Israel, when all the sins of Israel that weren't covered by the sacrificial system that had been going on throughout the year, those sins could be covered. They wouldn't be wiped out, but they could be covered. And so there was a high priest who represented the whole nation, and he went through the curtain, pushed back that curtain, went through into the Holy of the Holies. He had a whole like bath and ritual and everything that he had to go through. He'd start out by making a sacrifice for himself. So he'd go out to that bronze altar in the outer court, make a sacrifice for himself. He'd fill up a, a bowl with blood from that sacrifice. He'd go in, go through this whole process, go into the Holy of Holies. He would sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat of the ark. He would pour it around the Ark of the Covenant. He would do this seven times. Then he'd walk out the holy place, back out to the bronze altar. He'd make a sacrifice for the sins of the people. So he would go through a little bit of a different process. In that process, there were two, uh, two goats. And one was to be used for a sacrifice, and the other goat was to be used as a scapegoat. And a scapegoat, maybe you've heard that term like your whole life. Uh, a scapegoat is somebody who takes the blame that isn't really theirs. And they take, end up taking the blame for something somebody else did. And so you'll see that and even hear that today. Like an organization, maybe they embezzled or did something wrong. And it's like, well, somebody's got to pay for this. Who's going to pay for it? And someone ends up being the scapegoat. Well, that... That came from this. That started with the Day of Atonement. And the scapegoat was to be led far out into the wilderness, so far that it could not ever find its way back. And the point of that was that the scapegoat symbolized the sins of the people being taken far, far away. In Leviticus 16, the goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness. And so, sins are taken away. They're never to be remembered. They can't, they can't find their way back. Such a beautiful picture of what Christ has done for us. He says our sins are on the ocean floor. They're taken far away. They won't be brought up again. Psalm 103, 12. Let's read this one together. He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. And friend, this is not St. Louis to Denver, okay? This is not New York to L.A. He has taken our sins so far that they can never be found with us again. So, after the high priest had sent someone to take the scapegoat away, he offered the other goat as a sacrifice for sin would repeat the process of sacrificing the animal, sprinkling the blood, all the rituals that go with it. Then he would offer a, a, one more offering, which is not a sin offering, but a fellowship offering, to say, God, is everything right between us? And amazingly, the goats, the rams, the blood, the colors, the metals, the wood, everything in the tabernacle and everything part of this process pointed to something about the coming Messiah and pointed to something about Jesus. And it's all a type. It's all a, the Bible calls it a shadow. It's all an object lesson with truth behind it. For instance, if you looked at the way that 
the pieces of furniture were lined out in the tabernacle to the way that God instructed the 12 tribes to build their encampment around the tabernacle. And what tribes he told to beware, you lay it out from an aerial view and it's the shape of a cross. And everything had to be done in the exact right process because God is pointing the way to something that, yes, the Day of Atonement had to be done every year. Sacrifices had to be offered over and over again until Jesus came. And Hebrews 10 says that the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. Those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They're only, it's only covering. It's only a, a shadow of what is to come. So zoom back out with me. You know, the, you know what's missing from the tabernacle? Just think about this really practically. Of what is, if you were to build the tabernacle, what would you have in there? What is missing? What's missing is a place to sit down. And everything that God asked them to make, in no part of it did he say, build a chair. It wasn't because a priest's work was never done. And there were no breaks built into the Day of Atonement or from the time that they were, of the day they were supposed to be doing sacrifices. It wasn't like they could offer uh, hundreds of sacrifices and then go into the Holy of Holies, take a break, sit down, scroll on Facebook, uh, you know, eat some lunch, talk with your friend about the game, pull up a podcast, take a load off. No, they're always standing. Always, their work was never finished. It was never completed. And the Day of Atonement attests to that, that the work was never done. As long as there would be sin, there would be sacrifices. And so it's never enough. It's never finished. Until watch what happens after Jesus' sacrifice in verse 12. But when this priest, Jesus Christ, have, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Maybe you've seen that before. You've heard about God seated next to Christ before. That's the power of it. As God's saying, it's satisfied. It's finished. Now, priest, come sit down. And this is why your salvation and my salvation is secure. It has nothing to do with what you've done, with what I've done. It has to do with the fact that Jesus' blood when he presented it to God, was satisfactory. It was so sufficient that the Bible says that he sat down at the right hand of God. So your, for your salvation to not be complete would mean that Jesus would have to get up from where he has sat down, come back, God incarnate, offer his blood again, go back up and sit down, then get back up come back down, offer his life again, rise from the dead, go back up and sit down. It would be like Jesus aerobics and we would just be turning into like rooting for Jesus to, to get up and, and do his thing. No, you can't undo the blood. There's nothing you could do to make your salvation more or less complete. My salvation, your salvation, you might write this in, is preserved 
and protected eternally by the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's why we sing of the blood of Christ. It's why we read of it, talk of it, worship Christ and and the cross and the shedding of His blood because it's our salvation. It's not dependent on us. And there's something inside of us that so struggles with this. And, And I think it's because we know our depravity and we know what we say and what we do and and we know what we think and the thoughts that are in our head at times and and we know our brokenness and so we think that man there's got to be something more I've got to do or or every time there's a salvation call we've got to we've got to answer it and and think we've got to do this over and over again that there's something that I've got to do that my salvation couldn't possibly be secure. But look at what God has to say about that. And believe Him. Because He says, when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it's not a part of this creation. He did not enter God's presence by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Friend, it is not, if it were about you and what you could do, then you could boast in your salvation. You could be prideful of it. It's not about your own efforts to keep yourself saved, to get yourself saved. It is about the blood of Jesus Christ. And anytime you say, well, I can't, there's no way God could accept me. You're saying Christ's blood is not sufficient. But His work is done and He gets the glory. In fact, that's the, that's the final chapter of the story as we bring this in for a landing. Is that God gets all the glory for our salvation for all of this. Because after the nine months that it took to build all the furniture, build out the pieces of the tabernacle. When all of it was done exactly the way God said for it to be done, His glory filled the tabernacle. In Exodus 40, it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, God had already been showing His presence in the cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, when they were moving. But in this moment, when the tabernacle was completed, His presence came and shone His glory over that mercy seat. What is, what is God's glory? We hear that term and we want to give God glory. What, what does that mean? God's glory is the weight of who He is. It's the substance of who he is, the weightiness of God. How else have we seen the weight of who God is? Well, there are some specific ways uh, that we see his glory. First was in creation. Uh, We see that the heavens, the earth, declaring the glory of God. And you've felt that before. You've seen that when you've been in a moment or a situation or a place Uh, where maybe just the weather was so powerful or the view was so amazing or there's just something in nature that was so powerful that 
you know, like there's the, there's the weightiness of God is being demonstrated here. In other places in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were walking with God. Sin had not contaminated the world yet. The weight of God, the fullness of God was there. Next time we see the glory of God is in the burning bush with Moses and fire on this bush, but it did not consume it. Why? It's because it was the glory of God. Moses was enthralled by it. In fact, he wanted to see it again. Chapters later, he says, God, show me your glory. They said, God said, you can't handle it. And has Moses hide his face and just part of God's glory passes by and even Moses' face is shining from it afterwards. And so God revealed his glory to Moses. The next place was in the completion of the tabernacle where God's glory filled the tabernacle. Then they took this portable tabernacle and when they made it to the promised land, God finally allowed Solomon to build a permanent version, this temple. And so they built a grand, humongous version of the tabernacle, permanent, the first temple. And same thing happened as God's glory filled the temple. But then God's people started to disobey him. And remember that covenant that we talked about. They started not holding up their end of it. And so God would chastise them and they would repent and they would come back to God. And and then they would turn from God again and he would have to correct them and and they would repent and and he would judge them. And and that cycle goes back and forth. And you can read that through the history of the Old Testament. Back and forth until the point that they are taken from their promised land into captivity, Babylonian captivity. And their temple is destroyed, Solomon's temple. And when they were released to come back from captivity, they knew they needed to have a place to worship. They wanted the glory of God in their presence again. So as captives, they built a temple, but they were poor. They didn't have the resources they had before. And so it was a very unpretentious temple and God's glory did not come to that temple. In fact, God's glory had left earth. And God's presence would still show up in people's lives and he would talk, speak through prophets and, and he would point the way. But they were longing for the glory of God. And then the New Testament opens up with King Herod, who we talked about at Christmas time, who's this horrible dictator. And Herod saw this poor raggedy temple that his subjects were worshiping in and he said well that's not grand enough for me like I don't want that representing representing me and so he had the temple built up and did amazing renovations and uh, it became a grand temple with these amazing walls and, and everything else and it became known as Herod's temple but God's glory still not still did not come to that temple And there's this gap of hundreds of years between when God's glory was visibly on earth and part of it to when Jesus came. And in John 1.14, he says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And we have seen His glory. He says, we got it back. The glory is back. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And Jesus brought the glory of God back to earth. Then he dies. He rises from the dead. And where did the glory go? Where is it today? In Acts chapter 2, 
You track the glory of God. It shows up again. About 120 followers of Jesus Christ are uh, scared. They're in a room busts open. Mighty rushing wind comes in. And over the heads of each one of them were these flames of fire that did not consume. It was the glory. It was the fire. And it was the same glory that had been in that burning bush that did not consume the bush. And it was the glory that was now over the heads of these followers. It went into them through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's why the New Testament says that now we are temples of the Holy Spirit. So that every person who comes to Jesus Christ, who believes in Him as their substitute, as their ultimate sacrifice, as their scapegoat, who takes their sin, the payment of their sin, far from them, receives the Holy Spirit, and has become a temple containing His glory. The temple that God cares about now is not one that's joined together by stones on top of one another, by a building, but it's one that's joined together by us. And it's why God says He wants His church unified, and He wants people unified, and His followers unified. Because we are the living stones of the dwelling of God. 2 Corinthians 4 says, For God made His light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure. What treasure? The glory of God. We have this treasure in jars of clay. It's meaning our life, our our bodies. To show us that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. God no longer is in a building. He cannot be contained by tents built by human hands. God lives inside of you. And we are the tabernacle of God. Not you by yourself, but us together are the tabernacle of God. There is one more way that God's glory will be seen. And it's in the second coming of Jesus Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. And so that begs the question, I think this whole series and this whole uh, history lesson of the tabernacle and everything that we've gone through and all the representation, is it begs the question, is Christ your life? And I have to ask myself, is Christ my life? Or is a bunch of other stuff my life? Do you know where your life is and why, and why you're living it? While you are living it. Do you know where your life is while you're taking kids to school and working on homework and going through school and, and going to work and doing laundry and going to church and living your life? That's not your life. Those are the things of this world. This world's not your home, and it won't last forever. That's not a purpose to live for. Your purpose is found in Jesus Christ. And when your life is with Christ, you will appear with Him in glory. My friends, I pray that you will take what we've heard these weeks. And if you ask me, what do I take from all this? Is that you will see yourself as believer priests representing God to the world representing the world to God and that those of you who know Jesus Christ will take it seriously to make Christ your life 
and to live the rest of your life in the knowledge of the glory of God, that you will hold him inside, that you will see that he preserves, that he protects you. I'm asking you, will you believe this, that I am a tabernacle of God, that God wants to dwell with me in the middle of my chaos, in the middle of my struggle, in the middle of my grief, in the middle of not knowing where to go, what to do, God wants to dwell with me. He is not far. He is right here. Would you pray with me, please? Well, Heavenly Father, you sent your precious Son in human flesh to dwell among us, to meet with us in our condition, to sympathize with our distress and to reveal your glorious presence to us. And God, we recognize that through Jesus, uh, we can present ourselves to you. And through Jesus, you present yourself to us. And Sovereign Lord, we bow in gratitude to you today. Jesus, God incarnate, we recognize our need for you. That there was no way for us to be saved, to get to God. And Lord, we don't need another system today. We don't need more to do. We need a Savior. We need someone who's powerful enough to say it is done. And that is Christ Jesus, our Lord. We worship him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. We would love for you to get connected to what's going on at Rockbrook Church. Visit us online at rockbrook.org for service times, small group information, and other ways you can discover your purpose here on earth.